Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I am the host to the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. And today we have part two of the Leslie Maxi interview. Leslie was such an incredible guest. I got to speak to her for essentially three straight hours and we decided it might make the most sense to release it as first her Olympic and athletic career and second her media career because she's doing some incredible things in media and it is not worth keeping the entire interview to one or even two hours at this point so I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode part two with Leslie Maxey awesome sauce awesome sauce and today part number two the Leslie Maxey interview one-on-one on our athletes with Michael Raziel. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me again. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for making time for me again. <laughs> please, please, please. Your time is much more important than mine. I love time, but this is my favorite thing I get to do. So if I can spend time doing this, what else could I ask for? This is perfect. That's so a good day. <laughs> it's a great day. So for everybody listening, if you haven't done so already, please hop back one episode, or I guess you could it really doesn't matter the interview like order. I would say hop back an episode, listen to the first episode with Leslie Maxey, um, one prior to this where we talk about her Olympic career, uh, USA track and field, world record holder, national champion, kind of. We get into that whole debate. <laughs> I don't want to get in here. Um, but we, we get into that debate a little bit. And it, it's a really insightful, really fantastic opportunity to just listen and hear what an elite athlete goes through on almost a daily basis and how they come to terms essentially with their career ending, which I think was incredible. But along the way, you had some awesome stories and obviously, again, went to the Olympics in 88. So that was a lot of fun to talk about. But today, we want to talk about the second. Um, can we call it your second act? I don't, I don't really know. Is that kind of... I like I mean, second act. Second act? All right. So Leslie's second act... Um, she spent a lot of time on TV, uh, specifically with ESPN, with NASCAR, including her own production company, um, and is now running the Maxi Media Group, co-owner, co-founder of Maxi Media Group, working with some incredible athletes, incredible people, and even working with the USOPC on some particulars. So let's start. Um, I guess this is why it doesn't really matter which order we listen to the interviews in, because you started your TV career almost at like the same time you started your running career. So I guess we can start right there. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about being, what, what were you, the youngest kid reporter um, in, <laughs> in history, I think, if I'm, no, I'm kidding. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your, your TV career as well, Leslie. No, it was a, it was a, a reporter show called Kids Watch. So we were all kid reporters, but I, uh, I saw it in my local market. I lived in San Francisco at the time, um, and it was on one of the NBC affiliates. And I was like, I'm as affable as those kids. <laughs> and so I called down to the station and uh, spoke to the producer. One of the producers actually called and the switchboard answered. And um, she's like, you know, KROA. And I said, um, I saw a show with kids on it and I think I can do it. <laughs> so oh, that's like, adorable. You need children's programming. And so she you know, connected me to children's programming. And I spoke to uh, one of the women that ended up being uh, my, one of my producers, a woman named uh, Chris Metcalf. And um, she said, look, we just cast for the show, but I'll take your name and your phone number and we'll give you a call. And that's what she did uh, several months later. And I came in for an audition. I feel like we talked about this story already, or maybe I talked about it. I, I did talk about it recently. So. I don't, I, 
I, you and I have talked about this before, but I am very confident we did not talk it on, uh, about it on the last episode. I think you, you, you brushed over it. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty cute story. So if people get to listen to it a second time, lucky them if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, it's a cute story. So um, long story short, my mom um, was a single mom uh, raising three kids and happened to be traveling for work the week the audition took place. And so my brother and I cut school and he took me on the bus to San Francisco for this audition, uh, came inside and, you know, started to fill out the forms. And the woman said, um, you know, I need, I need your mom's signature. Where's your mom? I said, well, she's parking the car. <laughs> Lying my little, nice. you know, what off. Well, hey, it worked. Uh, <laughs> and I went in and I did auditioned and, you know, answered questions and all that good stuff. And, uh, and we left, obviously, without the forms being signed. So I called about a week later and said I got the job, but that my mom had failed to sign the forms. And, you know, California law said that I had to, she had to sign the form. So I then told my mom, I had them send the forms to me. And when I received them, I told my mom what we did and asked her if she'd sign them. And she was pissed. And she was happy. And she was pissed. And she... <laughs> But she did sign it. I actually didn't get punishment for that, believe it or not. But um, I think for her, it just sort of reinforced the, like what kind of kid I was mm -hmm. and that I was I had always been one of those, see it, figure out how you can make it happen, and then make it happen. That's, it's, I mean, it's super cute. Um, I can understand your mom being angry, but being one bit. of the, yeah, like, hey, you, you know, you're not really supposed to skip school, right? Like, especially mm -hmm. at what, nine years old? Nine really years old. Really can't be doing that. Um, <laughs> honestly, if anything, she probably should have been more angry at your older brother because he condoned this. Um, I know, she was, so, she was mad at both of us. <laughs> because you at least, I mean, you did something, you were, you were, you know, as you said, you were a go-getter, you were trying to do something. I mean, it, kudos to him for helping you out. Um, was yeah. he angry? that you kind of ratted him out a little bit no he was cool oh, no 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 no. i mean he you know he was just happy i got the job yeah. but if we ever got found out at least it was in the yes. pursuit of success and not just you got found out and you failed to get the job yeah that's not a good combo i guess that's true when you look at it that way like if you didn't get it and your mom didn't know you know, no harm, no foul. Um, but getting it with your mom knowing still worth it because clearly it, uh, it it sparked something in you. Um, yeah. So you were a kid reporter on this TV show, and I know you you interviewed some pretty darn cool people as well, correct? I did. I did. Um, I did the last interview with Jesse Owens before he passed away when I was about thirteen or fourteen years old. That yeah. is, that is incredible. And again, like with Jesse Owens, everything that he's meant to the Olympic movement, obviously making some parallels to what you did in your career. Um, I don't believe in coincidences. Uh, so clearly there was something there. Um, and I mean, congratulations and kudos for that. That must have just Thank been, you. did you realize at 13 really? Yeah. You didn't really quite realize what that meant. Well, I, I knew who he was. Yeah, and, of course, of course. And I had actually, um, there was this national competition called the Arco Jesse Owens Games. And um, I tried out for them the year before, but I was sprinting. And, you know, I'm not a sprinter. I, whatever, I'm not a sprinter. And uh, so I didn't, I made it to nationals, but I didn't win. Mm -hmm. And if you won your event, all the kids that won got to participate in a reception for him before the, with him before the banquet. And so I, the next year, and I was on the show, I said, look, I'm going to win. <laughs> I told my producer, I said, I'm going to high jump this year and I'm going to win. And, and I think we should have a camera crew there because I'm going to ask Mr. Owens to do this interview with me. And so they were like, well, 
we're not going to send a, a camera, crew, camera crew down, but they did dispatch the NBC affiliate in Los Angeles. And I'm not sure they were like, we're coming to this meet for what? <laughs> but they came and I won. And I, you know, I said, Mr. Owens, after he gave me my, my medal, I said, um, I have a camera crew here and I really would like to do an interview with you. And he was like, you have a camera crew? And I said, yeah. And I explained to him about the show in San Francisco. And he goes, and you knew you're going to win. I said, I knew I was going to win. <laughs> come, come hell, high water or drifting snow, I was going to win. <laughs> so um, we sat on the high jump pits and did the interview right there. And he was the kindest, most self-deprecating, just, just warm soul that you could ever, ever meet. He was everything you would hope he would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is incredible. Um, and again, I mean, the chances that you were the last uh, interview, right? Like that, yeah. like that is, that is crazy. Um, you know how that ends up happening, but it is, it is incredible all at the same time. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but still, uh, still pretty amazing. And I just think it's, it's awesome that he was like, Oh, you, you brought a camera crew. All right, sure. I mean, you won. I like, guess let's just go. Like, whatever. <laughs> go we're here. It. Well, you know, what's funny is um, years later, I want to say maybe five years ago here on the East Coast, um, I was sitting on a panel in New York and they were introducing everybody and they introduced this woman. Her name was, her name is Gina Hemphill. And they said, you know, she is the granddaughter of the late, great Jesse Owens. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so wow. we're like, oh my God, we start talking. I said, I did this interview. And she said, I heard about that interview. She said, I heard about that interview. She goes, he always talked about this little kid who came with the camera crew and he did the interview. She's like, oh my God, that was you. That's so, too funny. Yeah, so we're friends to this day. But, I hope um, so. That's incredible. And again, years later, I don't believe in coincidences. <laughs> like there was one. something there. So like, <laughs> I think that is just so, so cool. So yeah. you're in TV from a very young age, obviously have some really cool stories that come along with it. Um, <laughs> but after your Olympic career, um, mm -hmm. after your running career, you um, step out of the athletic field but clearly want to do something still with athletics in some capacity, I have to assume. Um, so what was the timeline between ending your career in 91 and getting that job with ESPN in, uh, what was it? 2003. Okay. Yeah. What, yeah. what exactly were you doing in between there at that, at that sure. time? Um, so when I ended my career, I was living on the East coast and my um, coach, Pat Connolly was, um, our coach's first Olympian, I was his last Olympian. She was married to a man named Harold Connolly, who is a who was a gold medalist in the um, hammer throw. Okay. As, as incredible as it is, um, Harold was born with a, a withered arm. So his arm, one arm was smaller than the other, and it really had no use, you know? But as a hammer thrower, he used that withered hand to stabilize his other hand and arm. And, you know, you go mm -hmm. in a circle and, you, and they let the hammer go. So really, he was a one-armed hammer thrower, gold medalist. That's incredible. All right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty Jeez. crazy. Okay. Um, and he worked for Special Olympics International, 
um, at the time that I was uh, in, uh, actually I lived with them when I first came to the East Coast and then I got my own place. So when I retired, there was an opening um, in Special Olympics, Maryland, because I lived in Maryland right outside of DC. And so I ran the Western portion of the state for, West, for Special Olympics when I first um, went into the professional world. And um, just, you know, just an incredible time. I, I did a presentation for the Baltimore Orioles um, right when they moved into Camden Yards and um, Calvin Hill, who is the Hall of Fame, um, I think he was a running back. I think he was a running back um, for Yale, uh, Cleveland Browns, and um, Cowboys, the um, Dallas Cowboys. Mm -hmm. He was also Grant Hill's father. Um, and I did an interview. I mean, actually, I, I did a presentation for them to get some of their players to participate in some of our Special Olympics activities. And he declined the offer to have his players come over, but he made me an offer I couldn't refuse. He, he said, like, look, I have a job here in the marketing department. I'd love to bring you over. <laughs> and, uh, and so he recruited me into the Orioles. And um, I you know, became friends with he and Janet Hill, his wife, um, was Hillary Rodham Clinton's roommate at Wellesley. And uh, became There's too many. This is just too much. Isn't this crazy? This is way too many connections <laughs> here. This is, okay, keep going. I, I'm curious to hear who next who comes up next in the story. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, so I, I knew Grant when he was just getting done. He hadn't gone pro yet. Yeah, he was still at Duke. But I remember a, like a party at their house and they invited me because I was, you know, a young person in the area, but older than Grant and his friends, but not old enough to hang out with the Hills. It was kind of an awkward thing, but they were always so lovely to me all of my, all of my entire life and took really good care of me while I lived on the East Coast. Um, so I, I left the Orioles to go back to, I did work for the Orioles for a couple of years, um, left to go back to San Francisco and uh, got married and started to raise my family. And I worked at a boutique uh, marketing agency called Sports Visions. And one of my lifelong mentors or a man, the man who hired me became a mentor for me. His name was um, Robert A. Brown and just a, a really wonderful, wonderful man. And I uh, met some incredible people working for him, a guy named David Grant, a woman named Loretta Louie, who's now big mucky muck at Nike. Uh, we worked together there. And um, my ex-husband, so I, I shared in the first part of this interview that um, my husband was, I mean, that I had a training partner. Um, when I came back to California, we reconnected started dating and ended up getting married. So mm -hmm. um, my ex-husband played uh, baseball for the Giants and the Mariners. I think he was um, drafted by the Dodgers or the Houston Astros when he was a young guy um, out of high school. And we retired at the same time. So um, he started working in coaching in the um, A's minor league system. And uh, we, we went to Huntsville, Alabama when my kids were four and two years old. And he um, took a job with the AA team they are managing. And so um, we were in Huntsville. I couldn't do what I was doing in um, California. So I said, hey, I love television. I'd love to get a chance to see if I still you know, really mm -hmm. love it. And so I did an internship at 31 years old. Yeah, 31 years old. I did an internship at the uh, CBS affiliate in Huntsville, Alabama. It's called WHNT. 
And uh, it was one of those places where, you know, you shoot, write, edit, report. And so I would bring my little camera out to the, to the games, pop it up on the sticks, do my stand-up, <laughs> you know, to follow the game, interview the players afterwards, interview my husband. <laughs> I'd go back to the station and, you know, sit with the editor and we'd cut it down and make it into a package and put it on air. So um, it, was a, it was a really great experience, a really great experience. Um, I had to, when I, when I set up the internship, you know, I had already graduated from college, so I didn't have college credits to get. But once I got there, um, they had already, they put a uh, policy into place that all interns had to actually be in school. And so I went to the um, local Alabama, I think it was Alabama, Huntsville, whatever, campus. And I was like, I got to figure out how to do an internship. I don't, you know. So I'm walking up to, I went to the registrar and they said, well, you know, go over to the um, broadcast building and see if you could talk to one of the professors and maybe they might give you an internship where you can kind of do independent study. So I'm walking over there. And this guy is walking up, and um, you know I'm kind of wrestling with some bags and stuff. He's like, "Look, can I help you?" And I'm like, "Oh, thank you." And uh, this older gentleman, um, his name was Jerry. I want to say Washington, but turned out he was the professor that I needed to talk to. Uh, of to course, get he was. Independent study. Would you look at that? <laughs> then he became a mentor of mine as well. And um, so, you know, I, I worked there for, for six months and I did the, the work for the independent study. Obviously, I passed and went back to California and worked for the same NBC affiliate that I worked for as a kid um, covering the high school uh, show there. But it was it was really cool because my little sister, who was five years old when I went to the Olympic Games, was in high school and was a basketball player of some, you know, fairly good mm-hmm. recognition. And uh, so one, one Friday night and I'm you know, getting ready to do a story and I, I'm like, why? They just, they usually were very good about getting the clips to me so that I could look at them ahead of time to call it and all that kind of stuff. And they were so behind the curve on this. I was like, you guys, okay, I'm going to do this live. So when you run it, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> so the clips that they brought up, were my sister (laughs) and they had advanced to my sister went to Petaluma high school. Okay. Okay. And they made it all the way to, to the state tournament. And there, it was a small school. Um, You know, she, my sister is of mixed race. Uh, My, my stepmom is white and a bunch of little short white girls on this team. And she, and even my sister is not as tall as me. She's like five, nine, maybe these girls could ball. They could ball because they had been playing together since they were Mm -hmm. like six or seven years old. And my dad, when my stepmom was pregnant with my um, sister, he would go on my stepmom's stomach, you are going to be a basketball (laughs) player. (laughs) Because none of us were. My brother is 6'4", I'm 5'11", my other brother is 6'2". None of us can play ball. This girl can ball her face off. So, uh, so yes, I got to call her game when I was. That's awesome. At the same at the same station the you same worked for station. when you were nine years old. I mean, like, so you, you, not only did you interview Jesse Owens at that station at 13, um, mm-hmm. you then go across the country, essentially, 
to then interview your husband a bunch, which is kind of, I mean, I hope that's a pretty easy interview. I'm sure it could be more difficult than you'd think. Then you go back across the country to pay attention to your sister. I know you did a lot more than that, but, but again, it's just how all this worked out. Um, yeah. It's just, it's too cool. Uh, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I don't want to harp on it, but I don't believe in coincidences, man. Like, that's just crazy. Like, none of those things are supposed to happen. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe one of them could happen. But all of that happening in the span of only a few years, that is just absolutely fantastic. And I love that. And I'm, I, I just think that is so cool. Um, <laughs> so you're out in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much longer were you at that NBC affiliate for? Um, I wasn't there very long. I'd say just a season. Then I got picked up by this other high school show, which was the biggest one in the area. And I did that for about half a year. Then I got picked up by um, Fox Regional in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, and I, I scored an interview with Alex Rodriguez when he signed his first, you know, $250,000 um it was no, I'm sorry, 250 million, thousand, mm-hmm. whatever, yeah, 250 right. million dollars. And, and I scored an interview with him right before he did the, um, where he signed the contract. And, and one of the questions that I asked him, um, I guess if, if we had social media back then, it would have gone viral, but mm-hmm. it got picked up by the New York Times because I was asking him, you know, are you going for, are you looking for the place where you can really find a home and be there maybe for the duration of your career or you, you know, going for the money. And so he's like, well, you know, I'm a young man and I'm going to, you know, get married sometime soon and have a family of my own. And, you know, I have a family to support. So, you know, I, I really want to be able to take care of my family. And so the, the headlines and for the New York Times are like, Alex Rodriguez is going for the money. Yeah. And I was like, and the All next right. time I saw him, he was like, you tricked me. I was like, you know what? I didn't trick you. I just uh-huh. asked you a question. You answered it honestly. <laughs> yes. And which, I mean, honestly, who, 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 who would hold that against him, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Who, how can you turn down? I mean, granted, he was going to get paid anywhere he went, as we saw. But, like, it is crazy. But I think that's a great question on your part. And, yes, as you are right. That 100% would have been absolutely <laughs> viral right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, the Fox National got wind of it and brought me down. And uh, I take that back. They didn't bring me down. I, what did I do? You stormed the gates and forced them. No, I kid. I did. I actually oh, did you storm did. the okay. gates. See, I know you. I get this. <laughs> I kind of can see where this is going. So I met Kevin Frazier. Um, Kevin Frazier is the host of Entertainment Tonight. Okay. Um, and he started, well, he started in Baltimore, but he was at Fox for many, many years. And then he went to ESPN and he and Stu Scott were on the desk together. And then he got picked up by Entertainment Tonight and went to Entertainment Tonight. So um, I met him at this conference called the National Association of Black Journalists Convention. And, um, and he was just, you know, really cool. And there was a show on Fox that I wanted to do called Going Deep. And he said, look, the guy that you need to talk to is Reed, what was his last name? Can't remember his last name. Um, but he said, you need to talk to him. I'll connect you on email and then you figure it out. And uh, so he did. He connected us on email and, and the guy wasn't going to see me for a couple of months. In that time frame, I ruptured my patella tendon. And so I was supposed Wait, to see again? him. again? This was the first time. This oh, is the first time. So okay, now they're okay, kind okay. of overlapping. Yeah, okay, I was okay, back okay. in California. I ruptured my patella tendon and I'm in I'm in television now. 
And, um, and so I have this appointment to go to LA to meet with these producers of Going Deep. And, um, and so I, I, it was like maybe a week after I did it. So I am fully in a brace. I, I cannot bend my leg. When you rupture your patella tendon, your leg is straight for almost six months. And so, you know, my leg is straight. Now they can do some other stuff. But back in the day, this is what they did. And so um, I rented a, an expedition. My cousin drove me down. I sat in the back of the car with my legs straight out because I have a 36-inch inseam, so I have a lot of long legs. Sat in the back of the car. She brought me down there. I crutches into the interview. The guy was like, you could have rescheduled. I said, you know what? I always had this, they had and have this thing where I see opportunities in my mind's eye. And when, I, when I'm first conceptual, conceptualizing it, it's a very open window. But as time ticks down, that window starts to close. And, and in my mind's eye, I was like, if I don't make it for this interview, it's not going to happen. And so I you know, loaded up the truck and went to Beverly. <laughs> So I made, made my way down there. My cousin brought me down and I went to the interview. Um, we had a really great talk, so much so that he put me in contact with this guy named Steve Tello. Now, Steve Tello was uh, one of the guys that was one of the big anchors. Um, I don't remember if it was Peter Jennings or... I think it was Peter Jennings. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like he did the Bay of Pigs with him in the whole nine yards. Goodness. So this okay. guy was like a yeah. news guy. And so he brought me in and looked at my reel and looked through my information and everything. And he goes, he said, look, we're going to be honest here. You're not ready for the opportunity that you're stepping into. He said, but I can't help but look at all of the other things that you've accomplished in your life and think that if I planted the seed, what could happen? Mm-hmm. I said, Mr. Tello, if you plant a seed, I'll give you a redwood. And so he hired me. <laughs> he hired me on the spot. And, you know, the good thing about somebody hiring you for something like this, where they recognize that you will do the work. You know, there were times when it took me probably four or five times the preparation to be able to execute like it was seamless. Mm -hmm. So the preparation was there and it was like me and a wing and a prayer trying to make this happen. But he was invested in me doing well as well because his name was on the line. Mm -hmm. And so um, he, you know, he he challenged me. He gave me opportunities that were going to stretch me, but not so much that I would fail. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and, and just, I mean, he just really, really pushed me. And I, I remember there was this one story um, where I, I did an interview with this kid that had a, got a compound fracture in a, in a football game and, and ended up getting an infection in his leg and he had to get his leg amputated. Mm. And so he came back to play one more game and, and president um, Clinton heard about him and met with him and it was, you know, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And so in my interview with the kid, he's telling me about this and everything. And I was like, Oh my God, it would be so great to get president Clinton on the phone to talk about what it meant to, you know, to meet with you. And so I reached out to the white house and, and president Clinton took the call. So I did the call with him 
And then afterwards, after the story aired, whoever the aide was found out that they didn't do proper due diligence. He should not have done that interview. But I'm like, I'm calling from a news outlet. I'm not just, you know. Exactly, yeah. And so this guy like called and he he tore me a new one. He's like, I'm going to have your job. And blah, 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 blah. And this is the White House calling. And I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, I said, you know what? You, my aunt used to say, you got to bring ass to kick ass. I said, <laughs> you better bring it. <laughs> so when I get off the phone and I'm like, oh, my career is just starting and it's over. Oh my gosh. So I called Steve Tello and I told him what happened. And he said, he said, did do you have this on email? Yes. Did you say that it was going to be an interview for tell and who you work for? He said yes. He said I fucking wish they. Well, I'm sorry. He said I wish they would. <laughs> he said I wish they would try. He goes. They'll have to come through me first. Oh yeah. Oh my Last goodness. Last we heard of that. That is <laughs> awesome. I mean, one thing that I found, um, especially within the the field of media, is if people start saying things like that it means you're probably doing something right mm-hmm. right and like, the thing about it was it was a beautiful interview exactly it's it not like it was like interview. shaming it's not like yeah. you were going after him if, if anything it paints him in the best possible light right so yes. I'm, I'm sure there was a reason that gentleman called you up and was so angry but at the same time I mean, what, he's going to fire you for no. some incredible story? Like, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. He called up because he probably got his ass handed exactly. to him. Exactly. Yeah, yep. for not doing his due diligence. Mm-hmm. So now he's going to try to put it on me. I'm like, you better bring it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> but, oh, wow. That, yeah. So you've interviewed Jesse Owens, Alex Rodriguez, <laughs> President Clinton. Um, I mean, who else? You haven't even made it to ESPN or NASCAR or any of these other incredible places as well. Like, was there anyone else that you kind of just made a gl- might have glossed over in there? Well, you know what? I interviewed Kobe. Oh my goodness! No way. Yeah. Wow. I interviewed Kobe um, at the 2003 All Star Game, and um, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, he was so sweet to me. And I know some people said that he was aloof, or you know, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know him, know him, but in this interview. He was so kind to me that it was so casual. I couldn't use it on my tape, on my reel. You know, when you have these big interviews, the thing you want to do is be able to take that clip, put it on your reel to be able to show the level of work that you've done. But he was like, hey, girl, how you doing? I was like, I'm good. How are you? What's up, man? <laughs> and we, it, Exactly. It was a what's up interview. And when I saw it later, I was like, Oh my God, I can't even use this (laughs) because it was so casual, but he was really, really sweet. That is incredible. Um, And just for a little bit of context, I mean, this is one day after, um, you know, the tragic incident that happened um, in California with Kobe, his daughter and and seven other passengers. Um, And it's it's just, it's awful. I mean, it's, it's one of those, when you see it, you're like, no that's not how it works. Like, yeah, no, that's, that's just, just not how it that's works. just not how it works. You know, he's supposed to be an ambassador for the game for another 30 years talking sauce, you know, to some eight, you know, six year old that hasn't even picked up a basketball yet. You know, we'll be seeing him talk to that kid. And, uh, you know, it's yeah. extremely unfortunate, um, especially everything he's done for the, the WNBA and the women's game is, you know, that's, he's a huge advocate for it. Um, obviously again, his daughter, 13, she was, very, very into the game. So it's, it's just extremely unfortunate. And yeah, when I saw it, I just, 
I was like, no, nah, it's probably just something, you know, someone being an idiot online. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's definitely one of those that when it happens, um, it's, you, you never obviously think about it. And the weirdest part was just literally the night before, you know, with LeBron passing him on the scoring list. And, you yeah. know, when my friend originally texted me, he just said, oh my God, Kobe. And I was like, okay, did he say something silly? Did he come out and, and be like, you know, if I was still around, I'd beat the heck out of you, LeBron kind of thing. And no, I mean, it was just, you know, literally the worst possible thing you could imagine. Um, yeah. And it's still, I mean, it's crazy. You know what? My, um, yesterday was my daughter's birthday. It's her 26th birthday on the 26th of January. That's called a golden birthday. Mm. And when I talked to her last night, um, she was really kind of subdued. I'd, I'd sent 26 presents to her, <laughs> to the set where she works in television. So to the set where she works and, and they gave her presents all day long. And, uh, and so she was really kind of subdued. And I said, I said, baby, what's wrong? And she said, it's just been such a weird day. I said, yeah, I know. I know. I said, it's just been crazy. And she said, mommy, I don't know if you remember, but when, so my daughter worked for me um, with one of the accounts that I had for the president of media sales at BET. And one of the really fun offshoots was that you get to go to the concerts sometimes and so she got to see Beyonce perform oh. and she I mean and they had great tickets they were right on the floor and who was sitting next to them Kobe and his daughter and so at one point Kobe had to get up and she said we were like partying together she said he had to go up and get something and and she had her credential on for BET so he knew that she was staff and she's an adult and uh, and he said hey would you mind watching Gigi while I go and, and do whatever it was he needed? And she's like, yeah, I'll watch her. It's all good. And so she, you know, she spent probably 20, mm -hmm. 30 minutes with her while he went and did what he needed to do at Staples. And Man. she was like, mommy, I can't believe that little baby is gone. Yeah. It's, it's and awful. There, there's literally no, no positives. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, some, someone can find some light in it, but right now it's just so unfortunate considering how far and wide his reach was not just within basketball being, you know, arguably top five i mean you can put him anywhere in there depending on who you are um yeah. but then his 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 reach in business his reach in philanthropy and everything that he's been doing outside of basketball um yeah. might have been even bigger honestly and he's only been doing that for a few years uh and you know obviously hearing clips of you know former interviews and some of the things he said and some of the things he's done has just been incredible um you know compiling and aggregating all of them into into a single day but you know it's for the worst possible reason unfortunately so yeah. you know that's you have you have talked to some incredible people leslie um shout out to your daughter happy birthday to her unfortunate <laughs> um but you know that's you know, 26 good for her she's made it this far so hopefully an, another uh, another few uh another 50 70 years something like that she can make just hopefully as big of an impact as you are um you know on the world as a whole i think that would be a very very good good way to look up um and you know try to accomplish things just hey what'd mom do okay just do it a little bit better right nah she's got her own path i tell you i i admire her so much yeah she well she and my son they're they're artists and i you know i don't know where i guess they got it from their dad because they didn't get it from me but um it's it's really beautiful to see them blazing their path mm -hmm. and, and doing what they're passionate about. You know, I told them, if you follow your passion, the money will follow you. And, Always does. Uh, yeah. yeah. Always does. So one of your passions, um, you know, obviously journalism, sports, a lot of different things led you to ESPN. 
mm-hmm. where you were employee number, what was it? I, please remind me. Oh, it was. Yes. <laughs> employee, employee number one on a little show called Cold Pizza. And for those of you that might be a little bit younger, I remember Cold Pizza. Um, but for some of you that are a little bit younger, Cold Pizza was the first iteration of First Take which is now made very, very famous by Stephen A. Smith. Obviously, we yeah. all know Skip Bayless was on there. Um, but Cold Pizza, uh, Jay Crawford, if I'm not mistaken, was he yep. the lead um, when that originally came out? So he's been around for a minute. Um, Jay and Kit. Yep, yep. Thank mm-hmm. you, thank you. And, uh, you know, I remember when it came on, it was such a funny name for a show because it's like, you know, you wake <laughs> up and you kind of just eat the cold pizza that was there from the night before. I mean, That's you got to do right. what you got to do. And it really, I feel like that name had its biggest most impactful meaning for me when I was in college only because there was a number of mornings that's when I did that's what I did but um yeah the executive about- producer's daughter <laughs> named the show and she's she? a college student surprise <laughs> look at that um but it was it was a really cool show it was a lot of fun a, a little bit different than what it was than what it is now thankfully mm-hmm. I'm not the biggest fan of the show now but tell me about I mean first off what's it what was that hiring process like and especially understanding that hey like you're going to be number one. And then, you know, this show, a lot of this is going to be, you know, through your help and, and what you've done in the past, but what we can see you doing in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, when I was leaving Fox, I did a kind of a tour of different, um, different networks, CNN, ESPN, CBS. I, I did the, um, the tournament for CBS in between that time and, uh, and then I, you know, I came up to ESPN and it was before E60 um, started, but they, I think they, it was like on the horizon, they were talking about it. So there were some really specific things that I was up there for. And um, Cold Pizza, you know, the reason why I was employee number one was because it, it was just, it was a little more than a rumor. Mm-hmm. And, and they wanted to, um, they got the executive producer, Jim Cohen, is also the executive producer of Around the Horn. Okay. And um, that there's a, the show either before or after Around the Horn. It's a kind of a similar format, Talking Heads. Part of the interruption? Uh, part of the interruption, yep. exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, he had a lot of juice. And, and they were, he said, look, I want to take part of the format of just throwing out topics and, you know, you kind of go for it and, and use that in the show itself. And that's what I was hired to do. Um, and then, but also have elements of a morning show so that we cover sports entertainment, we cover sports music, you know, so it was all of the elements of a morning show from a sports perspective for the mm-hmm. most part. And so during that show, like I interviewed Denzel Washington because he did, um, well, it was when he did Man on Fire, but he was getting okay. ready to do the hurricane. So he had started oh, production okay. on it. Mm-hmm. So I interviewed him and we talked about both sides of it. And I interviewed Russell Crowe because he was doing Cinderella Man, but it was Master and Commander. I think I actually talked to him about. But the thing about you know taking that, that approach was like, you know, people were talking about how prickly Russell Crowe was. But he could not have been nicer. And he said, I'm so happy to be talking about something that's like not the normal fare. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people really, really enjoyed that. So that was, it was a unique take and a unique spin on what sports could look like and, and how sports really permeates the different par- parts of our world and culture and society. And I would imagine if, you know, if it was still in its original iteration that we would have done a big thing on Kobe and Dear Basketball. 
you mm-hmm. know? So yep. yeah, it, was yeah. a, it was a really cool, a really cool take um, on, on what was possible in the sports space. And so um, that day when I was interviewing at, e- at, at ESPN and I was going around talking to the different EPs and, um, and my agent was trying to get me in with Jim, but he was, you know, doing whatever. And at one point I walked by his office and the door was open. So I peeked my head in and I was like, Hey, hey. <laughs> how I'm you doing? Maxie, you don't know me. <laughs> and I sat down and I talked to him and he ended up hiring me. So when I was telling him about the show that I did as a kid, um, the, the second show that I did, I don't think we really talked about was a music show. And he was like, can you sing? And I was like, of course I can sing. I'm like, please don't ask me to sing. He asked me to sing. So I think I sang like um, from Evita, the Don't Cry For Me Argentina song. He was like, oh my God, you do have a voice. Okay, we'll figure this out. And uh, so I, you know, I came back home and my, you know, my agent then gets into the process and she's trying to you know, work, it, work her angles. And at one point I sent him a, like a, um, a a pizza, but it was a paper, not paper mache, but like um, made out of Play-Doh almost. Okay. And yeah. And I, and I sent him this Play-Doh pizza and I was like, Hey, how you doing? You know, thinking about pizza, blah, blah, whatever. And he was just like, you are so creative where this is going to happen. And so they did, it was a long process. It was a long process. I, um, I, you know, was going through a divorce at the time. So, um, I wanted to be you know, really careful about when I signed the contract and all that kind of stuff. So we agreed in principle. And then when the divorce was final, then I signed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, so your role was to interview all these incredible athletes, actors, musicians, um, no musicians. Yeah, I did. I did interview musicians. My original role was to be the person that, you know, basically was a referee in those conversations. Oh, okay. When they came to air, you know, they built a new studio. So they, they took Mm -hmm. a, what was kind of a shell of a studio, completely gutted and built it from, from the ground up. I mean, it was, it was a brand spanking new studio. And, um, and so we started probably a month and a half late. We were behind schedule. We were supposed to go on because in, back in the day, things started at the beginning of the school year. So September was when all these shows went live. Mm-hmm. We didn't start until October, something or other. And, and we were a million dollars over budget and late. And so the one thing that I said was, don't have me come 3,000 miles move my family and, you know, bring my retired mother back to New Jersey because I had to be there up, you know, four 30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, my kids were little at the time. I said, don't have me go all this way and make me into Ann Curry. I said, I just didn't want to be the newsreader. And today in the news, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. and that honey for the first, I don't know how many months, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. And so they never really got around to the role that I was cast to do um, until long after I left. And, um, and then they moved up to, so I, I, I transitioned from the newsreader to more in the field because that was really more consistent with the work mm-hmm. that I had done. And, uh, and so that's when I got the opportunity to really cover some of the more fun stuff and, and bring personality to mm-hmm. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is, that's, I mean, that's, we all have a personality and if you can let it shine, I mean, shoot, like Eddie, I, okay, I take that back. Not anyone can read off a teleprompter. <laughs> that is completely false. That is false narrative and I take it back. But I know you um, <laughs> and I think you're probably better suited having a little bit of fun and, and getting that out there a little bit more as well. So yeah. after ESPN, mm-hmm. you then go to NASCAR. 
No. No. So um, they moved the show from uh, New York okay. to Bristol. Okay. So after mm-hmm. about three years, they were like, oh my God, this is really expensive, you think? Yeah, I, I could have told you that back then too. <laughs> yeah, Surprise. so they, they moved the show up to Bristol where they could aggregate some of their resources and not have to outsource and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then so I went from being an employee to being a, a contractor. So mm-hmm. I flipped my contract so that um, I was a consultant for ESPN on contract. And, and I still did um, field reporting. I did a lot of track and field at the time, covered some Olympic sports, did some overnights and stuff like that. Um, but it allowed me to build my business. And, and on one of the trips, I went to Portugal to cover a, um, a junior Formula One team that had two American drivers. And you mm-hmm. know, there aren't a lot of American Formula One drivers. One of the drivers' name was Scott Speed. And uh, so I went to Portugal to cover these two young drivers. And, and they, were, um, they were part of the Red Bull family. Red Bull hadn't launched its Formula One teams yet. They were still doing the, um, you know, basically the minor leagues, um, Formula Four, I think it was. And, um, and so I, I went over, did the story, and they, the woman that brought me over said, hey, the um, owner of Red Bull, a guy named Dietrich Mateschitz, is going to, since this is the last race of the year, he's going to send his private plane and take all of the journalists just to a little, you know, end of the year party. Do you want to go? And so I called my mom. I'm like, okay, I'm going off for a week, but would you mind hanging in a little bit longer? She was like, girl, you better take that opportunity. So, so I went and, um, and I met uh, the owner of Red Bull. And he's one of those people that has such a great affinity and admiration for athletes. You know, when Felix Bumgardner did that um, free fall from outer space, mm-hmm. it was Dietrich Mateschitz that, that made that happen. He paid the money to make that happen. And he said, you know, my, my gift to athleticism is if you have a dream, I have the resources to make it happen. And, uh, and so, you know, when he found out that I was an Olympian and everything, he was just like, oh, just because we're in the, in the plane and all the journalists are kind of in the back. It was like this DC-10 or something that he had completely refurbished. He had an entire museum of um, antique planes at, at, in Salzburg, Salzburg, Austria is where um, Red Bull is housed and Hangar 8 is where he has these planes and then he has a museum and then he has this fine dining restaurant and it's all, it looks like a big, like a half egg. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And so um, he, he called me from, you know, back in the plane when he heard that, you know, there was an Olympian on the plane and we just, just talked. And he was like, I just want to know about your experience. Blah, blah, blah. So we're, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, you know, we you know, party for the weekend. It's all good. And then at the end, he says, um, he goes, well, you know, let's definitely stay in touch. And so, you know, we exchange cell phone numbers. I'm exchanging cell phone numbers with a billionaire. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm going to hear from you. Again. Yeah. Right. Right. So about six months later, I I'll call am, you. I'll call you. Don't worry. <laughs> I'll <you>. call you. <laughs> I'm like, I ain't calling that number. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, it probably isn't even real. Um, so my phone rings and his name comes up on the caller ID and I'm like, somebody's punking me. Mm-hmm. That's been, this is Leslie. He's like, Leslie, this is Dietrich Mateschitz from Red Bull. I was like, uh, hello, Dietrich. How are you? He's like, I'm great. You may have heard we just purchased a Formula One team. And I said, no, I haven't heard. 
And he said, you haven't heard. I said, well, Formula One really is more of an orphan sport in the United States. I said, even though it's so popular around the globe, there, it just doesn't have the same following, you know? And so he said, that's a problem. He said, I, I, I've been, that's why I'm calling. I need you. And I'm like, what do you need? He goes, well, I'm looking for a U.S. correspondent. So I said, okay, <laughs> tell me more. So he said, well, why don't you come over to Spain and, you know, and we'll talk about it. Come yeah, just come Spain. over. Yeah, drive down oh, the road, yeah. hop on a plane. Call He's like, I'm going to have my assistant call you. Yeah, she'll, she'll buy you a ticket and, you know, come on over. So his assistant called me later on that day. They brought me a nice little first class ticket and flew me over to Spain. I watched the testing for the team and, um, you know, just kind of learned about the ins and outs of what they were doing. And so we flew back from, we're in Madrid. So we flew from Madrid to Salzburg, he and I, on his private plane. And we're going to talk about what his vision is for this role. And so he says, okay, well, I want, you know, a U.S. correspondent needs to do this and that and that. And as he's describing it, I'm like, you really need somebody to do PR and a little bit of marketing. And so he goes, he goes but it's a correspondent. I said, no. I said, in the United States, a correspondent is a reporter that goes out to get the story. I said, but what you need is someone to actually do PR and some activation, some marketing activation around it. I said, I haven't done that in years. I hadn't done that since the Orioles. I said, I haven't done that in years. And it's something that you really have to keep those specific contacts up for. I said, but I know people, so I can get you in contact with the right person. But in good conscience, I can't take this job. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, oh, that's too bad. And so... We're sitting where we have been talking, yak, 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 before, we're sitting on this plane and like, it's dead silent. I could hear the engines. It's dead mm -hmm. silent. So I was like, hold on one second. I'm going to go to the ladies room. We'll be right back. So I go to the bathroom and I'm telling you, Mike, there are gold fixtures in there. And I'm wow. going, I'm like, Leslie, what are you doing? Out. Figure Just it out. You know? Learn on the job. All right. Learn <laughs> on the job. It out. So compose myself and come out of the bathroom. And I said, well, what are you guys doing in television? And so he's like, well, you know, we have a company, production company that does some stuff, but they don't get my vision. I was like, if I were you, I'd do this and I'd do that. And what I basically described was the 60 minutes of sports, of extreme sports. And he's like, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I was like, dude, I could do that in my sleep. And so he goes, okay, let's do this. He said, when we get back to, when we get to Salzburg, I want to have someone take you to our vault. You pull a couple of tapes and, and pull the complete set of tapes. Because anytime you see a three-minute story, there's probably three hours of tapes Oof, and interviews yeah. and stuff. Yeah. He's like, so pull the complete library of a couple of stories that interest you. And I want you to recut them in the way that you would see, you know, that you could actualize this vision that we're talking about. I was like, I can do that. He said... But in exchange, he goes, if I like what you do and I hire you to, to do this for us in the United States, you'll be my U.S. correspondent too. He goes, and I don't care if you go, I said, can I hire a staff? He's like, you can hire a staff. I said, okay. I said, I'll hire a staff. He goes, but I want you to lead that staff. He goes, and hire the staff on the television side. He goes, but we'll do both sides of it. You get what you want. I get what I want. I said, okay, that's fair. And so... I started working for Red Bull. I, you know, every um, they, Christmas time was when they would do a lot of their organizational planning. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you love Christmas, 
you have to at some point spend time in Austria. It, it is the soul of Christmas. Mm-hmm. They have these beautiful artisan villages. It's just it's oh my goodness, un- I can only imagine. Real. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, so you know, I, I worked with them for a few years. Um, we did a, an incredible documentary for them. Um, I traveled all over the world. Um, doing the U.S. correspondent work, launched both teams there, uh, Red Bull Racing out of um, England and Scuderia Torrosa out of Italy. And, um, you know, it was just, it was an incredible experience. Incredibly. And this, this man is just, he's salt of the earth. He is salt of the earth. It's just always nice. Man. It's always nice when you meet someone that just has so much money. You personally wouldn't know what to do with it, but you couldn't tell. Um, there were so many people growing up that, you know, I grew up in a relatively affluent area, um, but there were just so many people that would give you the shirt off their back and they wouldn't hesitate to do it. And then you find out how much money they're worth and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just nice to know that there are good people. Um, out there that are doing things like that and willing, not only willing to give you a chance, but saw what you did, saw what you've already impacted and then saw what your capabilities were going to be moving forward. Um, so you said you spent a couple years there, traveled the world, did a lot of things. What was the reason for so I shifted to NASCAR? Yes. <laughs> shifted. Also, nice pun. Um, but Oh, yeah. I didn't even hear that. Look at yeah, you. Yeah. Look at you. Um, I mean, I can understand a lot of travel, a young family, a lot of things going on. What what exactly was it that made you decide, okay, you know, Formula One doing all this was incredible. You you ran your team, it sounded like. Like how many people were above you at this point? For with with my company, you mean? Yeah, well, like with when you were doing everything for Red Bull, I mean, you were top of the food chain. I mean, did you answer directly to him? Did you answer directly? I answered like, directly to him. So that seems like a pretty darn good gig. Um, I'm sure there was, was some reasons, but like, what exactly? <laughs> what exactly led you to um, hop out of that realm and yes, shift over yeah. to NASCAR? Yeah. So um, you know, we did the doc- the document documentary for them, and and it it was great. But in 2008, when the economy went crazy, small businesses, entrepreneurs probably were hit harder than anyone else. And any, any entrepreneurs in media, even more so. And, and so for our company, we did um, production coordination for ESPN, um, Monday Night Football, uh, for MSG, for CBS. So we, we had a bunch of really great accounts, but they weren't um, traditional production. It was production management. So basically, when you have a, you have a show coming on air, you're going to have somebody that's doing all of the nuts and bolts of what it takes to get that, that show up and running. And that's what we were doing. Um, in addition to, so we would take these type of contracts, but we'd also get to produce some content for that company, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the same thing that we did with Red Bull, we did with other companies. And, um, and then when the economy went so crazy, a lot of uh, like ESPN said, we can bring that work Mm -hmm. in-house to save money. And so the very last show that we had on the docket to be sold, we had sold it in principle we hadn't signed the contracts mm. yet. And, and this particular network um, had a completely overhaul of their executive leadership staff and the new president and his staff wanted to take an 
an entirely new um, direction with the network. And so all of the shows that had been agreed to were now cut. And it was like, I, I remember looking at our book saying, if we finish this sale, we'll be good. We'll be able to ride this out. If we don't finish the sale, if we fall out of the sale, which is what it's called, I said, we're going to have to close up shop. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting at this table and, I, you know, most of the people on my staff were male. I'm sitting at this table. I have uh, seven guys around me and I'm telling them, okay, here's where we are. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you have never seen grown men cry. <laughs> grown men cried that day. I was like, dude, there is no crying in baseball. <laughs> I was like, and I, you know, I had to make a choice support the dream, support the kids, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, you know, that's the hard thing about being a single parent. I wouldn't necessarily just say being a single mom, being a single parent, and especially a single parent in an industry as volatile as television, is that, you know, it is very up and down. And when it's up, that's great. When it's down, you need somebody that's going to keep the insurance going. Mm-hmm. Kids can tend to grow. They have to eat to grow. You know, yeah, all of so these I've things. heard. Yes. Yeah. And so having that time to just kind of lay in the cut until things blew over was not an option for me. And, uh, and so what I did was I took the, the strategic model that I built for um, Formula One for the work that I did with Red Bull. It was a very similar dynamic when it came to NASCAR and the Northeast. Mm-hmm. don't have the same level of popularity. It's, it's about people having a first-person experience with it, particularly media. What could I do to bring media in so that they would then cover it and have people come to the races? Mm-hmm. You know, so it was the same thing I did for, um, for Formula One. I then did for NASCAR. They had a position that was open. I reached out to, um, I actually, first I applied for it, didn't hear anything. And I was like, I can do this in my sleep. I was, yeah, so I I was going to say. To a friend. Mm-hmm. And I said, do you know the hiring manager? She says, as a matter of fact, I do. And so she put me in contact with this guy and they came for the um, end of the year banquet and his in-laws lived in Morristown where I live. And he came out, we went to the local coffee shop, shot the breeze for a while. He was like, you're hired. See you on Monday. <laughs> Easy enough. Easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, um, oh my goodness. And then, so you spent some time in NASCAR, um, mm-hmm. hanging out there for a little while. It's definitely a unique sport um to say the least i do believe they're athletes i mean i would say i was just had literally had this conversation the other day with somebody and i was like well Mm -hmm. do you have you ever driven a car for like three straight hours they're like yeah it sucks i was like all right well now do it at you know sometimes 200 miles an hour you know add that stress and and you're not allowed to stop (laughs) Uh, you can't eat there's so much stuff that's Mm -hmm. involved with it you know on your body, the toll on it is insane. I wouldn't be able to do that at all. Everyone thinks they can do it. I bet you until they get in and realize. Mm-hmm. So it is incredible. So taking everything that you learned from Red Bull, as you said, and, and really being able to equate it with, um, you know, F1 to NASCAR to the, the Northeast compared to, you know, the rest of the country with people really not paying attention to F1 too much over here. I know it's grown mm-hmm. a lot uh, recently, um, but NASCAR has also seen a significant decline recently. Yeah. Now, I have to assume that's because you eventually left the organization, but until then, um, <laughs> you know, what was it like? I mean, especially being, you know, big cat, being the head person in charge mm-hmm. now, you know, obviously I'm sure you're still in charge of a team. You're still doing a lot of things, but what was that like? And of course you did it, as you said, for insurance, for your kids and all these other reasons. What was that like kind of taking a step, I guess, do do I want to say down? Is that insulting? I don't really think of it as like, you know what I mean? Like taking that going from the leader of everybody 
to now, okay, now, now I'm, I'm a part of the team now. Instead. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, it was different for me because I was in the New York office and in the, the home office for NASCAR is in Daytona beach, um, Florida. The corporate office is in Charlotte, North Carolina, where the um, hall of fame museum is. Mm-hmm. But the, the business of NASCAR is in New York city and, and everybody from my team, was in Daytona. There was one woman that was in Los Angeles who kind of did a similar job as me. And I feel like there was somebody else that was maybe one other place. So I had all of the resources of NASCAR because it was one of the larger offices Mm -hmm. um, without any of the day-to-day of really having to answer to anyone. Mm -hmm. Which really it, it served me well yeah. because I was used to working independently. I was used to you know building things out of my own imagination, and and so it, as much as I communicated to and I, I think I had a different boss every year I was there, you know, and so that in and of itself was you know a little bit kind of drove me crazy. But I was I, I wasn't 22 years old and needed somebody to give me give me guidance. I knew what to do and I had done it already and had done it quite effectively. So it was it was just taking that model and you know boom putting it down here and then and then having people know who I was because at the end of the day I was a black female in in NASCAR in a predominantly white sport. At the time, there were no black drivers. Um, you know, I, I was one of the first people that worked with, um, with Daryl, what's his last name? See that boy's face right now. Anyway, I'll think of it in a minute. Um, but he, he was one of, the, one of the latest crops of, of drivers of color. Um, I was an in, in integral part of getting, um, Grease Lightning. I know you know who this guy is. Uh, uh, Danny Zuko? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I love Grease yeah. so much, so that one's easy for oh, me. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm no, sorry. I know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. That was stupid. I apologize. That, I just no, love Grease okay. so much. that's okay. That's <laughs> okay. I'm horrible with names, but in any event, getting, getting him inducted into the Hall of Fame, Richard Pryor played him in a movie. And it was before your time, but mm-hmm. in any event, um, so you know, so being a black female at NASCAR, you know, there were times when I would walk into um, media center to talk to a track president with my white male assistant, and they would talk to him, and he'd mm. say, "You need to talk to her," <laughs> mm. you know, yeah. because they automatically would not would assume that I was the assistant or I was the person junior in command. And, you know, it's, it's par for the course in corporate America, but at the end of the day, to be the person that knows the industry, knows the work, you know, I, I had to do this speech one time and they said, talk about something that nobody would know about you. And, and I talked about the fact that I have experience on every level in motorsports as a black female. Who else can talk about that? I don't think too many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so it was. It was an interesting time. It was an interesting time. Um, You know, did I did I deal with racism for sure? Um, Did I did I deal with with misogyny? Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, if if don't ever get the have the Me Too call come to me because I said I would never make the call, but if the call comes, I'm not gonna lie either. You know, yep. so that's, that's just, you know, par for the core 
course when you work as a woman in sports, but to, yeah, the, I am 5'11", so there's not a whole, you know, very few times do mm-hmm. I feel unsafe physically, you mm-hmm. know, um, but you're always going to have somebody that's going to try and, you know, mm-hmm. climb the totem pole as it were, and, and to be able to handle yourself in those situations. And, you know, fortunately, it's less so now because of Me Too, you know, mm-hmm. yep. but I always felt like it was my responsibility to advocate for other women in the space who maybe didn't have my background or didn't bring to the table the things that I did. And, and, and as a result, you know, it was difficult for them to, to really advocate and stand up for themselves. So Mm -hmm. that, that was always something that I felt was um, a part of, of my calling where much is given, much is required. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I'm proud of the work I did at NASCAR. I got the, um, the first time the Empire State Building was lit for one sportsman was done by, through me. Jimmy Johnson got his sixth consecutive NASCAR um, victory, uh, well, Sprint Cup title victory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got the Empire State Building to light the towers in his team colors and, to, and um, got Mayor Bloomberg to declare it um, Jimmy Johnson Day in, the, in, in uh, New York City. Very cool. Yeah, so that was, that was probably my, my little icing on the cake moment at NASA. Absolutely. Um, but um, but did, a, did a lot of good work and, and got great numbers and was able to, you know, even though they didn't want to promote me because it was very old boy and it was very kind of, not kind of, it was, it was very racist. Um, there were promotions that I should have gotten that I didn't get, but I was always able to prove it by the numbers. Yeah. You know, so when I was done with my three years there, I was able to to make a seamless shift to back to my own business. And and this time, instead of having it exclusively television production, um, I, I didn't I did media, media production. And so with all of my experience in media, PR, marketing, media activations, international communications, on air as a reporter, host, anchor, behind the camera, creating content, all of those things come to bear in the work that I do now. And, uh, and so it, it's just, it's a, a different type of experience to be able to call from those areas um, when, I'm, when I'm doing the work, working with either athletes or executives or activists. Mm-hmm. And I think what you do now is, is incredible and I love it. And that, that was a great story. Thank you on NASCAR. Um, I was obviously, I have to ask, uh, you know, what is it like being a black female in NASCAR? Uh, so thank you for not making me do that, I guess. No, I kid. I was going to do it anyway. But uh, you, you gave a great answer and, and I thoroughly enjoy and appreciate the story that came with it because it's pretty much everything that we'd you know, I'd expect, I guess. Does that make me a bad person? I don't think no, so. But No, I mean, it, it, is, it is what you could expect. But I can also say that I had incredible experiences. Oh, you my know, goodness, yeah. Dale Jr. was phenomenal to me. He was really, really great. Michael Waltrip, mm, you know, he, he came around. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, so I, I, I did, I enjoyed the drivers. Um, many of them were very, very kind. Um, I can't say that I, I dealt with any, um, any sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm take that back. I can't say I dealt with, dealt with any racism as far as the drivers were concerned. Not crazy about those Bush boys. Um, but I can't say I really dealt with any racism, uh-huh. but you know, there, there was some harassment, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I handled it. 
<laughs> yeah, I am. I am sure you did. Um, as we've heard from many of the other stories, uh, I'm sure you handled that with uh, with grace and uh, maybe Not with a fist, grace, but maybe, maybe a fist or two. I don't know. Whatever you got to do, as we found out here and there, as we have found out, whatever you kind of put your mind to, you're going to do it. So I was. I'm very confident. It's very unfortunate what happened, but I'm confident that you came out um, on top of that situation, and it sounds like you did. Uh, so now you are a co-founder of Maxi Media Group. Nope. Founder, co-owner. Founder, co-owner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Semantics. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Um, so now you are doing, as you said before, you're drawing upon all of your experiences, all the incredible things that you've done in the past. Mm-hmm. And now you're able to help many different people, activists, athletes, executives, as you said, in all of these sorts of situations. Um, yeah. So thankfully, the economy started to pick back up. You were able to yes. leave NASCAR, start your own thing again. Um, so now, and plus your kids are kind of older at this point, so I'm sure they're fine, right? So mm-hmm. um, this is a youth thing now, which I'm, I'm very grateful for. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about some of the things. I know you're working with Edwin Moses. I know you're working with the USOPC on certain things. You and I, we mm-hmm. connected over an incredible event um, back in November. I think that's the time frame-ish. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, well, we connected probably back in the summer. We got some ice cream. It was delicious if you ever did Brunswick. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess just tell me about some of these incredible projects and athletes and people that you're working with. Um, yeah. To, uh, to give you, you know, a, even more, uh, just give me more stories. I'm loving it. Just, just keep going with the stories. We're good. <laughs> well, um, so when I, when I left NASCAR, I knew I wanted to, like I said, call on these, these different things that are, are my experience. And the thing about, I, I asked myself when I turned 50, what do you do that you love so much you would do it even if you weren't being paid? Now, I'm not at all proposing to the universe that I not be paid. Pay me, pay me well, <laughs> pay me for my experience. Um, but but I would. It, it feels that that good. It feels like it's consistent with why I'm here, and and that's speaking. That is, and in, in not just speaking, but helping people to come to their authentic voice. And so um, when I when I made that declaration that I was a really going to press into that. Um, the thing that's great about it is when when you're a speaker, there are things that you have to deal with around PR and marketing. There are things that you have to deal with um, around being in front of a camera, um, being behind the scenes, knowing what's going on so that you can position yourself to do the best that you can do, knowing these different roles because the team that you have around you is going to have to bring these skills to it. And, and so... When I'm talking to someone, I, I was very fortunate when in my time at NASCAR that I, I developed their speaker training curriculum. And, and what I did was I knew that I was going to be leaving soon, and I also knew that they needed this. So I created the framework for it, but I didn't populate it with my information because I was like, this is 30 years of my experience, and I'll be damned if I'm going to give it to you. You know, so um, so I did some training with uh, drivers and with executives and stuff. And the feedback that we got from them was just it was incredible. You know, it made you feel like eh, this is it. And, you know, 75 percent of society abhors public speaking because we all share one thing in common between your right ear and your left ear. And so, you know, what can I do to help this person to get past the thing that would keep them from actualizing that dream of speaking? And, uh, and when, I, when I was, you know, kind of in the throes of it, 
um, back in 2017, I got sick. I had a, a health issue, actually two health issues back to back. And because I was an independent um, um, business owner, you know, if you're on your back, you're going to be relying on your savings. And, uh, and so I had to do that for almost a year. And so I brought my business partner on board. Um, she is an award-winning sales consultant from IBM. Her name is Renice Gillespie. And, uh, and she left the IBM sales world to raise her family years ago, fell in love with health coaching, which eventually led her to transformation coaching. And so when we got together, we were connected by a mutual friend um, who knew her operations background. But as we started to talk, I was like, look, you're a really incredible transformation coach. And I had done a lot of personal work in the space of transformation. Um, and I knew that it was an important part of the, of the speaking world. And I also knew nobody was doing it, but I wasn't a certified trainer. So with her being a certified trainer, some of the things that I suspected we needed, she said, oh, it's this, it's that, it's the other. And so that's when I said, look, you know, instead of just being an employee, I, I think it would, it would behoove us to really take this and make it a partnership. And so what we've done is bring mindset, method, and monetization to the speaking space. Mindset. What, what frame of mind do you have to be in to align what you want, what you say you want, with your actual goals and making them a reality? And that's a mindset issue. And then method. What do you need to be able to do from a logistic standpoint, from a skill perspective that will um, have you in a position to, to deliver a transformational speech? Because when you speak, it's not about your story. It's about what your story does for the person who's listening to it. Are you going to give them something that they can take away? And inspiration is great. I know what you do. Yeah. But I really want to give you the tools to, ch to change your life. Mm -hmm. And that's what true transformational speaking is about. And, and, and people that get up on stage and they give you a great story without giving you something to actually take away and use in your life are doing you a disservice. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's been our main thing. What, can, what is your call to action? When you get to the end of the speech, what have I empowered you to do and given you the tools to do successfully? And so we've got the mindset, method, and monetization. And on the monetization side, it gives us the ability to call from my experience in the PR and marketing world. Because a lot of, a lot of what you do with branding is how do you position yourself in the market? How do you figure out what the market needs and that you can be that person to fill that niche? And so that's the monetization side of it. And really, what are some of the best practices around speaking so that you can get your videos when you get done, so that you can get paid? the rate that you have earned so that you can negotiate your contracts in a way that honors your experience. So that's the work that we do. And um, you mentioned Edwin Moses. Well, actually, I'm going to take that back a little bit more. Um, I mentioned having had those two back-to-back -back illnesses. And, and I said, well, you know, maybe I do need to go back to corporate. And I saw this, uh, this job on the NFL, and it very much aligned with some of the things that I had done for a few of my clients um, when, I, when I first brought my company to bear. Um, and, and I really considered taking this job. And then I, one night, I just had this dream, and it was like the Holy Spirit was telling me, don't, don't do this. Not that you can't do it, and not that it won't be fun and you won't make a lot of money, but is it really 
really actualizing the dream that you said you had and what you thought you wanted to do to make a difference. And, uh, and so I turned it down. And um, the next week, a dear friend of mine reached out and said, um, I have, there's this woman who is, um, she's, she's having a viral moment and she's going to be big, but I can't represent her yet. Would you be willing to work with her? And it was Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement. So when the Me Too movement first went viral about a week or so after it happened, he connected us. We started talking. Great, great woman. Her mission is phenomenal. The work that she had done for the decade prior, because this wasn't a new thing, (laughs) the work that she had done for the decade prior really prepared her for this moment. But as she said, she was always a worker bee. She was the one behind the scenes doing, you know, doing that kind of work. And and now she's the voice in the face of a global movement. And uh, and so I I think that it was it was God's way of, of demonstrating to me that if you stay with this dream, I will make it more than you could have ever conceptualized. And so um, Tarana and I worked together for about six months and we still keep in contact. She did uh, come to the Being Brave show and she we named an award after her um, for this fundraiser that I, I helped to organize. But, um, but it, was, it was the thing that crystallized the vision and, and I knew that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, doing what I was called to do. And so with that, um, we are now doing, we, we do uh, training, services, and consulting. So on the training side, um, the work that we're doing for the USOC, now the USOPC, United States uh, Paralympic Committee, um, the work that we're doing for them is training Team USA to be able to tell their stories in a transformational way and position themselves in the market uniquely so that each one of those athletes can really leverage the experience that they have and the work that they've done to be a part of Team USA now all over the world. And so um, it's, it's, been, it's been an incredible ride. We hosted the most successful webinar that they have hosted to date back in November and just so gratified by the response that we've gotten and just the, the way that they have um, really taken to the work. So we're in the process of planning their spring work and then we'll do their um, summit, which happens after the Olympic Games um, in Washington, D.C. and Part of that summit is if you opt in to go to the White House, but we'll be working with them on, on some work around the summit and, uh, and really putting together some ex- exciting programs for the athletes. And, um, and it's almost like kind of that you, if you build it, they will come. So we're heading down to the Super Bowl tomorrow to do some work as men, uh, mentors for the Legacy League. And, uh, and we will be evaluating their uh, Legacy League as an um, entrepreneurial accelerator for NFL players. And so as they come into the accelerator, we'll be evaluating them. And then some will need more work, some will need less, but we'll design programs to help them in the speaking space and support the the work they're doing as entrepreneurs. Um, And then we are also um, getting ready to do a similar thing for a young man named Kevin Atlas, who is 
the only person to ever play NCAA Division I basketball with one arm. And he is the most popular uh, youth speaker in America. He speaks for, he's the face of Varsity Brands, a $3 billion company. And so he's starting Atlas Speakers. And we're going to be training, evaluating and training his speakers as they come on board so that you know, anytime he can't take a gig, send somebody out there to do the work. These people are very, very high profile in and of themselves. Um, I don't want to give away too much, but, um, but it's a pretty exciting thing. And uh, we have a couple of other um, jobs on the horizon that are very similar. So that's the training aspect of it. And then on the consulting and services side, um, we're working with Edwin Moses. He's a two-time Olympic gold medalist uh, in the 400 hurdles. Um, I met him for the first time when I was like 15 years old and he gave an award to me and I just was like over the moon and we've remained friends over the years but, um, but are now both friends and, and colleagues working together and we're building a program called Icon to Icon for him that will activate at the Olympic Games in Tokyo this summer and uh, it'll be him uh, in conversation with other icons from across the Olympic movement and, and talking about sport for good and what it really means to live the pillars of Olympism. Um, Edwin was actually chosen by Nelson Mandela back in 2000 to lead the Laureus Foundation and they're getting ready to celebrate their 20th anniversary in February. And so, um, and he has been the global chair for all that time. And it's, it's just, it's a, it's a rare privilege to have the opportunity to work with the likes of someone like him and, and just the different people that come to the space as, as a result of the work with him. Uh, we work with Lisa Guerrero, who is um, the award-winning investigative journalist for Inside Edition, we work on some of her branding and some of her speaking. And she's actually signed with a couple of additional speakers bureaus. So it's a, it's a wonderful time um, for her and for her brand. Her brand is being brave and that's the life that she's living. She, you know, she's brave every day Day with uh, Inside Edition. And so she's now being able to talk about it and giving young women and, and you know, executives and, and, and different people around the world the tools to be brave in their everyday life, understanding that they get to define bravery for themselves, you know. So it's a, it's a cool time to be me. It's a <laughs> great way to end that oh my goodness no i just think you're doing so many cool things i mean especially as you were you know we're talking about the um you know toronto burke and the the me too movement um you know obviously the athletes on team usa you know it's uh, i do what i do because i appreciate the athletes so much um and you know i want them to have a life after their sport you know career comes to an end because it's going to i mean that's just how biology works right so it's very unfortunate that many of the athletes after they're done in their sport that they, you know, they didn't really gain too, too much. You know, they may might've been on an incredible stage once um, if they're extremely lucky twice um, and they do so much training and, and so many other things that in not every situation are they as prepared for the, you know, we'll go with air quotes on the normal life, the nine to five, the corporate jobs. So, and I don't think that's what they should be doing. I think they're much more incredible than that. So by you doing what you do and helping them, um, you know, figure out and, and learn how to become professional speakers in, in certain capacities, they can then take their experiences, which are incredible. I've interviewed like 120 Olympic athletes at this point. Now I've interviewed you twice, which maybe two of my favorite, but just, just their stories and what they've done. And, you know, just, they just need a little bit of help in being able to 
mold it into something that can be set on stage and impact lives. And then getting the opportunity to learn, you know, obviously the, the monetization aspect of it too. That's, I mean, everybody's got a good story, but if, if you can't mold it into something that is impactful and then you can't make money off of it, you know, you're just sitting here talking to me, which is awesome. And I love it. And I'm it's sure, you know, awesome. it is, but they're not getting paid to do it. I'd be awesome if I could pay them one day too, you know? So, um, you know, I think it's incredible what you're doing there. Obviously the work with uh, Edwin Moses. I mean, I just think you're doing so many, so many cool things and it's, it's awesome. I mean, we've pretty much sat down for like three hours at this point over the last like week. I know, right? Um, and, and just being able to learn and, and it's really the coolest part is just being able to see how all these things finally culminated into what you're doing. And mm -hmm. now I'm really curious, everything you're doing now, how, what is that going to turn into? And I'm really excited to, you know, hopefully stay friends with you over the next yeah. 10, 20, 30 years, <laughs> just to see all the incredible things that you do, all the lives that you're able to impact. Because, you know, personally, I mean, yes, I love talking. As you said before, you know, it's something that you would do and not get paid to do. This is it for me. Hopefully, mm -hmm. you know, I get paid to do it, but we'll see, you know, that, that, that is what it is. But just being able to figure out what you love so much and how to do it, you are, you know, second degree, you know, sec two degrees away from impacting these people by you helping these Olympians, by you helping all these incredible athletes and executives and, and, and change makers and activists, you are now putting your hat in the ring to say, okay, this is how I can impact the most people. And, and that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I want to help these athletes and I want to help them put their stories out there. I want to help them get money and, and, you know, be speakers and, and get on stages so that they can impact the most people. And, you know, that to me feels good because yeah, I'm impacting one life, but that one life is then impacting thousands. And that's exactly yeah. what you're doing. And I think it's, I think it's incredible. And that's why I enjoy your conversation and enjoy your company so much. Well, we appreciate you, Mike. We do. I mean, because you've been in the weeds and helping to create opportunity for athletes. And, you know, a lot of times people will bypass Olympians because unless you're that 1%, mm -hmm. there's, you know, not a whole, whole bunch of money to be made. But um, you figured out a business model and, and it's working. It's doing great work while also doing good. And we appreciate you for that. Well, I thank you for a little bit of recognition, but I didn't need it. It's just too much fun. I thoroughly enjoy what I do. I would be so, remiss if I didn't say it. <laughs> I appreciate you, Leslie. Um, this has been just incredible. Um, I can't wait. You know, the first episode dropped already. Um, mm -hmm. And the second one will be one week later. Uh, so okay. this one will be coming out in a couple of days. And one more time, I, no need, but one more time, Leslie Maxey, 1988 Olympian, business owner, um, entrepreneur, incredible around person, good friend of mine. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank I appreciate you, Mike. it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Leslie. Um, she's incredible. She's such a good friend of mine and I've known her for a while now and I've just enjoyed every second that I've spent dealing and, and, um, working with her. So please, as before, follow her on all her social medias. Everything will be in the show notes. Please make sure to follow us as well at ourathletes.us on Instagram, at ourathletesusa on Twitter. Follow me on LinkedIn or send me a connection request, Michael Raziel, Michael, Michael at ourathletes.us if you would like to shoot me an email. And if you know any athletes that you think I should interview or any athletes that you know that you'd like to put me in contact with so I can interview, please let me know because I would thoroughly enjoy it and last but not least please 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 rate this show five stars um reviews all of that stuff subscribe it helps really with the algorithms and getting people to hear about the show and hear about the incredible stories these olympic athletes hopefuls and legends like leslie maxi 
have. So thank you all so much, and I hope you make it a wonderful day.